we're in 50 days of Easter as a church, and we're coming upon the end of our time. We've got two more weeks. This week, we're going to talk about Pentecost, which actually happened 50 days after Easter. And then next week, we're going to talk about commencement, not commencement in a graduation, but the commencement of the church. That song we just sang is called Rattle. It's based on some Bible verses in the Old Testament, a story that happened about 3,000 years ago. Uh, God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision. It's that song we sang. I actually got a tattoo. I like that, that song and that, that story and those verses so much that, that I just inscribed it on my body. And the vision kind of goes like this. Thousands of bones are spread out across this valley. And this valley then, with all these bones, kind of resembles a battlefield where two armies have had this big fight, and nobody has come along behind them to bury those bones, and so they're just strewn out across this field. And over time, the flesh decays off of those bones, the bones would be bleached in the sun, they'd be scattered by animals, there'd be a skull over here, some finger bones over here, a thigh bone over there. And we're told in the story that the bones are dry, Why are the bones dry? Well, dry bones are so worthless that not even the vultures have a use for dry bones. And so these are worthless, useless, dead, dry bones. And in Ezekiel 37.3, God asked me, this is Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, just a name for Ezekiel here, says, can these bones live? It's kind of an odd question. Can these bones live? And Zeke, he answers, sounding a whole lot, I think, like Peter, Sovereign Lord, you alone know these bones can live. And God answers, again, sounding a lot like Jesus in that same story. He says, prophesy, speak to these bones, hear the word of the Lord come to life. That seems like a pointless effort, right, to talk to some inanimate objects. But God is teaching that nothing is impossible with him, as we just sang. And so Ezekiel obeys, there's a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones come together, tendons and flesh appear on them, skin covers the tendons and flesh, but they're still not breathing. And so God tells Ezekiel to prophesy again, to speak again to those bones, this time telling them to breathe in the name of the Lord. A mighty windstorm comes, and these zombies now breathe, and it says they become a vast army for the Lord. This vision, among other things, and I can't get into all the things that the vision is really about and what it's foretelling, but it is also foretelling the events of Pentecost that we're going to look at tonight, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, usually a president's first 100 days in office, they're kind of busy, right? They're the really important days because those first 100 days in office for the president of the United States lays the groundwork for the rest of their time in office. As I mentioned earlier, it's been 50 days since the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been 10 days since he ascended, that we talked about last week, to the throne of heaven. And so I'm certainly not comparing Jesus to the U.S. president. That'd be a terrible uh, correlation. But Jesus' first few days on the throne, Jesus' first few days in office, are going to set the tone for his eternal ring. And so let me set the scene. Here's what's happening now in this story. The disciples, Jesus has ascended. He's left them. And so they're gathered in Jerusalem. They're waiting as they were told. And as they wait, they worship. There's about a hundred or so of them. So it's kind of like us here. They're all in one place. They're singing songs. They're praising God. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2 then begins like this, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. We should talk about that word, Pentecost. It's already a special day in the scriptures. The schools are closed. There's no work being done. The city is busy there in Jerusalem. I want you to just kind of imagine Mardi Gras in New Orleans. That's what Jerusalem would be like. And they're having this big festival, this big party, Pentecost, which is the Feast of First Fruits. This is an agrarian society, and so what they would do, these are farmers, they would plant fields, and 50 days or so later, penta means five or 50, 50 days or so later, the first harvest from their plantings would begin to ripen and be brought in, and they would bring them in, and they would give thanks and celebration to God. That was Pentecost. It was a celebration of the first fruits. The very first Pentecost actually happened 50 days after Passover, after God had liberated the Hebrews from Egypt. Remember, he brings them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And at this first Passover, this first Pentecost, I mean, God's presence came down from Mount Sinai. He met with Moses, gave the law, and created the nation of Israel, the people of God. So we've got two kind of things going on that's being celebrated with Pentecost. It's kind of like when we have holidays, and sometimes there's multiple things that we're celebrating within that holiday. And so Pentecost is a celebration of first fruits, and it's a celebration of God coming down and meeting Moses face to face. And so here's the day God has chosen to send the Spirit. Why would he choose Pentecost? Is there any special significance to that date? In Romans 8, Paul says, creation is held in bondage to decay. Creation is held in bondage to decay. And I don't know if you pick that up or not, but Paul actually knows modern physics. (laughs) Scientists also say that the universe is in a constant state of decay. That beginning with this big explosion, the Big Bang, ever since, the universe has been expending more energy than it makes. And it makes the, the universe then in a constant state of decay. But let me just say that a little more simply. In other words, the universe and everything in it is falling apart. That includes the universe and the um, planets and all of that, but it also includes you and I. These beautiful high school seniors that came up here, the four of them, they got no wrinkles. <laughs> they got no gray hair. They're looking great. Best they'll probably look in their lives. <laughs> they're feeling great. Probably the best they're going to feel in their lives. <laughs> their minds are sharp. Their bodies are strong. Enjoy it, kids, because it's not going to last. You're going to get old. No matter how well you eat, no matter how much exercise you put in, no matter how much facial cream you use, the natural state of the universe is the state of decay. You can't fight it. And so Paul says this in uh, Romans 8, verse 20. He says, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Verse 23, then he says, not only so, not just the universe, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. And so what Paul is saying is creation itself, the universe itself, longs for a day when there will be no decay. That believers, we long for the day when our bodies will be fully restored and redeemed. But in the meantime, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. He's directly referencing back to the Pentecost. 
The Spirit dwelling in us is our first fruit. It's our first harvest. It's our first installment of the glory that's to come. In heaven, we'll see God face to face. But through the Spirit, we can begin to experience His presence now. It's a first fruit. In eternity, we'll be holy and perfect. We'll become more like God. But through the Spirit today, we can grow in wisdom and grace and compassion and love. It's an early harvest of what's to come. One day, we'll no longer experience physical decay, thank God. But through the first fruits, we have the power to help stem the tide of spiritual, psychological, and social decay. If we forget that we've been given this power, this first fruit, we're missing out. It can even be dangerous. But likewise, if we forget that it's just a taste of what's to come, that can be equally destructive. I'll share a story. Emery, my daughter that left, she's nine years old. <clears throat> Latest trend, I don't know if you've seen these things, they're fidget poppets. Some of you parents with younger kids know this. They're just, I think they're things for kids with ADHD and you, you pop them and push them down, but they've spread and now all the kids like them and have them and want to trade them with each other and make deals and I guess they're learning life skills through that or whatever. Um, fidget spinners, that was kind of a trend a while back. It's, it's along those lines. Anyway, she wanted to use our phones so she could look at them on Amazon. Just look at them on Amazon. Karen discovered that she did more than look. She ordered about 30 of these things from China, India, all over the world. And you can't, can't, some things you can't cancel on Amazon. And so daily, we have these fidget things showing up to our house Literally this week, they're still coming. I didn't even know they were still coming. And it's got like Chinese writing on the outside. I'm, oh, I thought it was anthrax. I, I literally did. I was scared to open the thing. Emery made a bad choice. Sin, greed, covetousness. I'll see people, though, make equally dumb and sinful choices. And they'll say, you know, the Spirit led me to do that. Spirit guided me to do that, justifying their choice or the behavior, the direction they went. We need to remember as believers, we have the Spirit of God within us, but it's only a first fruit. You're still a sinner, which means not every thought that comes into your head is a direct communication from God. And so as a believer, discernment of the Spirit is not optional. That's why it's important to be in God's Word, where the Spirit speaks most clearly. What arrives at Pentecost is a first fruit, a taste of something greater to come. And so we need confidence in that power in our lives, but we need humility to discern the guidance through our own sinful actions. Now, I've gotten ahead of myself because the Spirit hasn't shown up, and I'm talking about the Spirit. So let's jump to verse 2. It says, Suddenly... There was a sound, a rattling sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Verse 3 says, Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. 
What Luke is trying to do is explain something the best he can that's not explainable. It's, it's something supernatural that's happening, and he's trying to use his words to describe it. He says, it's like a roaring windstorm, or it looked like flames that appeared on their head. In other words, he's saying, I have no words that describe what happened, but this is as close as I can come. When God shows up, especially in the Old Testament, it's almost always in the form or accompanied by fire and or wind. And I thought about that this week. These are two very destructive forces of nature. We know about wind here in southwest Florida. We know what fire can do out in the west. But what we need to also see is that these two forces of nature that are very powerful, that they can change a landscape. They can refresh and renew the landscape. Verse 4 says, and everyone present, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages or speaking in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So I want to stop right here on this speaking other languages thing. When I preach, you're going to get a lot of Bible. I mean, I, I, I reference and use a lot of Bible. And you're also going to get a little bit of Bryant. And so when I write sermons, I typically write them as if I'm just sitting at coffee having a conversation with a friend. And so that's why I talk like I talk. That's why I write like I write. And it also means that sometimes I say some stuff that I probably shouldn't because you'll say stuff with friends that, that maybe you shouldn't necessarily say from the stage. I don't care. You guys give me grace in that, and I appreciate that. So I'll just continue that, that trend tonight. Uh, an invite showed up in my Facebook news, week, or Facebook news feed this week, um, probably because I was searching Holy Spirit stuff. I don't know why this showed up, but I'll just read what you said. It's an invite. Uh, it said, come and experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit like never before. Join us for a powerful two-night event in I don't know how you say it, Okea, Florida, for worship. Worship, The word, demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, says bring your unsaved loved ones, anyone who needs God's healing touch, and people who are ready for a fresh move of the Holy Spirit's power. Do I consider these people that, that are having this big event, David, I don't know David Hernandez, do I consider these people brothers and sisters of, in Christ? I do. Do I consider this event that they're holding Total nonsense, I do. And here's, here's why. Being filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit isn't some sort of magical electricity. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the presence of God. It's not an it that you're filled with, it's a he that you're filled with. This conference, which I'm sure costs money to go to, is not going to give you more of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to give you more of him. You already have 100% of him. You cannot divide a him. You have him all. And so you can save your gas because there isn't going to be more of him. This is up near Orlando. There's not going to be more this weekend of the Holy Spirit up in Orlando than there is right now here in this room. And tomorrow morning when you wake up or while you're sitting on I-75, there's not going to be any more Holy Spirit there than there is there. And sure, we've all been parts of worship services where you can tell something special is happening, where we, we kind of say God takes over, but you can't plan that kind of stuff. The wind moves where and when it chooses. We don't get to control the wind. So I struggle with some of this Holy Spirit stuff. It bothers me because I think it cheapens God. 
Which means I also need to realize that I can be so repelled by this fake Holy Spirit stuff that in my own life, I can miss and forget the Holy Spirit. Much of my extended family, uh, cousins, aunts, and uncles, are either Pentecostal or Assemblies of God. Which, by the way, that kind of sect, that branch, Pentecostalism, is the fastest growing part of Christianity, which I think is not necessarily a bad thing. It's an indication that people still have a hunger for the transcendent. They don't know what they're hungering for, but it's something transcendent, and that that hunger is there is a good thing. But my aunts and uncles and cousins, they all love Jesus. If you go to their church service, they're inclined to participate a bit more in the preacher's sermon than you guys do. You're going to get a lot of yeses and amens and glory to God and hallelujah. Sometimes they'll run up and down the aisles with tambourines. They worship very enthusiastically. I put that in quotes because they're just, when you never know how they're going to worship it, it can be a bit wild. And they speak in tongues during the church service often. We have a group that meets here now on Sunday nights. Uh, They're called the River Dwellers. It's a group of ladies. They come in here and they meet. They're actually from First Assembly Church up the street. And I kind of had a hunch they were of that particular persuasion just by the language they used when they spoke because there's a way that Pentecostals and Assembly of God uh, speak. And so I I confirmed it. I talked to some friends. I said, yeah, yeah, they're they're that kind of group. They speak in tongues and do all that. They'll be here tomorrow night, you ladies, if you want to come and experience that and see what that's all about. I hear they sometimes fall on the floor shaking. That stuff all weirds me out, but, but I'm not criticizing it. And they are giving us $900 a month rent, so praise the Lord for that. <laughs> hey, if you're, by the way, you kids going to college, a little grad, if you get into graduate school or you're taking psychology, I think an interesting study would be introverts versus extroverts in charismatic churches. I would like to see the breakdown <laughs> of that. I think there's probably something to it. Um, I'll tell you, look, it's, it's not wrong to want or to expect or to long for some existential outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not wrong, but attributing those experiences with how much spirit you have in your life or how spiritually mature you are, how much faith you have is wrong. You could never speak in tongues you could never have a pastor hit you in the forehead and you pass out and body hits the floor. You could never have a supernatural encounter like we see here at Pentecost and yet still be completely full of the Spirit. Every Christian, every believer, the weakest, dumbest, whatever Christian, like we talked about last week in the kingdom of God, who has confessed that God raised Jesus from the dead is 100% full of God's Spirit. And so why do you have that spirit? What's its purpose? Is it for a spiritual spectacle, like a lot of people think, or is it something else? On the day Jesus died, we read that in the temple, the veil was torn. It was torn from top to bottom. That's what it says. The wall that separated the holy of holies within God's dwelling place and where God dwelled from the other parts of the temple, it was ripped and torn top to bottom. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, there was no more veil. There was no more Jewish dude dressed to the liturgical nines with goat blood on his hands. All that was done. The veil was torn. It was ripped. But the veil wasn't torn so that we could go to the temple and we could approach the Holy of Holies and get near to God. The veil was torn so that God could be let out of the Holy of Holies in the temple 
and allow us to become his new temple. God vacated the Holy of Holies then to make us holy. Today, there is a desire in many churches for a spiritual spectacle. But what the Spirit provides, I think, resembles more of spiritual grit. You want to come and experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit like never before, as the guy says? Here's a suggestion. Put yourself in a situation that requires more patience than you know you have. You'll experience the Holy Spirit. You want a fresh move of the Spirit's power in your life? Invite someone over for dinner that you don't know and then just get out of the way and let the Spirit do its work. You want evidence of the Spirit of God in your life? Then it isn't spectacles. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not passing out. It's not healings even. It's not miracles. It's your growth in obedience. We call this sanctification. The Spirit making beautiful things out of the dust of our lives. This is what Paul speaks to in Galatians 5. He says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Verse 22 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Remember, it's first fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These four kids that came up here, young adults, whatever, that are about to head off to college, what's going to carry them through? What's going to help them cling to their faith? What's going to draw them closer to God? What's going to help them uh, be ambassadors of the gospel? Is it A, speaking some unknown language during an emotional church service, or is it spiritual grit provided by the Holy Spirit leading every part of their lives? And you might say, but, but I want to feel the Spirit. I'm a feeling person. I want to be filled with the Spirit. Do you have joy during difficult times? Then you felt the Spirit. If you made a decision maybe to get up at 5 a.m. and to study God's Word, then you felt the Spirit allowing you to have discipline and self-control. I encourage you, step back. Look at your life. Look at the lives of other believers and see the Spirit. See the Spirit turn despair to hope, greed to contentment, bitterness to forgiveness, lust to purity, laziness to hard work, doubt to faith, ignorance to truth, rage to love, isolation to hospitality, fear of God's wrath to blessed assurance. Paul speaks of this kind of spiritual grit near his death in 2 Timothy 4.7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's spiritual grit. That's the power of the Spirit. So let's go back. You remember our disciples because that's who we're talking about here. They said all the wrong things. They did all the wrong things. Jesus spent 40 days with them. He showed them the wounds in his hands so they would believe. He taught them that all of Scripture points to him. He helped them prepare for the work in the kingdom of God. Remember, he said to Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. He tells all the disciples that are together together, he says, you will be my witnesses, not just in Judea, 
It's not just for you guys, but throughout Samaria, even those people you hate, and to the ends of the earth, even the peoples you don't know. And then Jesus ascends. That's what we talked about last week. He leaves them. He leaves them even though they were still the guys who said the wrong things and did the wrong things. But somehow now this small band of misfits from a fringe social class with marginal intelligence has been filled with the Spirit. Now that they have the Spirit, what will they do? Or better said, what will He do? Well, they start to talk. And out of their mouths come these languages, these words with languages they've never learned, they've never spoken before. Why? Verse 5 says, At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. And so imagine the scene. It's busy. It's Mardi Gras. The streets are crowded. They hear this sound. It sounds like a hurricane. People are rushing over. Then they hear these people, people speaking languages, somebody speaking Chinese, some guy speaking Italian, Mamma Mia. In verse 7, it says, they were completely amazed. How can this be? These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking our own native languages. Verse 9, here we go. It says, here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phyre something or another, Phya something or another, Egypt and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. And when we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. Why did Luke, did he include all those names and places to tongue-tie me tonight? Why, why does he include all of those details? I feel like his writing, again, not to pick on my daughter Emery, but man, when that kid tells a story, you are going to get so many extraneous details, it's going to take forever to get to the point of the story. It's just all these details that are unimportant to the story. Why is he giving so many details? It seems unnecessary, right? Whether you realize it or not, he's actually pointing back to the Tower of Babel. A story when people decided to be their own masters and God came down and he, he confused their tongues. But now here at Pentecost, instead of confusing tongues, there's a worship service being held and it's being held in every tongue. Instead of being confused by each other, everyone can understand each other. Why? It's another sign that the cross tore down all the barriers to the gospel. There's no longer linguistic barriers to the gospel. There's no longer racial barriers to the gospel. There's no longer nationalistic barriers to the gospel. The curse of Babel has been reversed. The effects of sin have been undone. The kingdom of God through fire and wind is being restored. Verse 12 says, they stood there, these people, amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They ask each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. <laughs> I know, I love that you guys laugh at that, because there is so much humor in Scripture. And they're just like, what's wrong with those guys? I'll tell you what's wrong with them. They're, they're a bunch of drunk idiots. And so verse 14, it says, then Peter. Then Peter. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times. Peter, the guy that Jesus restored by saying, feed my sheep. Peter, the guy that Jesus told, you will be my witnesses, even though you don't know how you'll be my witnesses, that Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted 
to the crowd. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. (laughs) Verse 16, no. What you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then I can't read it all, but what goes on from here is the most beautiful sermon ever written. It's this beautiful presentation of the gospel. And he goes through and he begins quoting scripture and he shows how all of scripture points us to Jesus. He witnesses to what he saw, what he heard, and what he experiences. Peter does what was shown to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Ezekiel didn't have the power to speak dead bones to life. He only got a vision. But Peter has that power and the prophecy is fulfilled. I'll read you just a little bit of it. Verse 22, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so Peter is adding flesh. He's adding tendons, and now he's going to breathe into their lungs. Verse 32 says, God raised Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 41 ends, Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. When Ezekiel saw that valley of dry bones... My bones was in that valley. Your bones were in that valley. Somewhere along the way, someone spoke. Someone prophesied the gospel. And you listened and you responded and your dead bones came to life. And now as a church, we've formed that vast army that is now spiritually alive. Our neighbor's dead, dry bones were in that valley too. And so God's command to us is to prophesy, to speak to them with words, speak to them with your life. And to do that, to speak with your words, to speak with your life, God has given you his spirit. He's given you spiritual grit. The grit to love your spouse, to love your kids, to be a good neighbor. The grit to help other sheep run, walk, stumble, crawl across the finish line. The grit to let your life and words prophesy to those dead, dry bones. So I want to close tonight with a song. I have the band come up. These kids that are headed off to college that I keep referencing, man, they're going to need some spiritual grit. I don't know what other better word to use than that. 
And so they're going to need God's Spirit going before them. They're going to need God's Spirit behind them. They're going to need God's Spirit all around them as they head off. But we all need Him. We need Him in the morning, in the evening, in our coming, in the going, in our weakness, in our rejoicing. And so I just want to profess that this evening as we close. Won't you stand?